0: Hey, New Life family, welcome to the weekly podcast. We want to take a moment to say thank you so much for listening. We hope this message encourages you and helps you in some way today move forward in your relationship with Christ and others. We pray God blesses you wherever you are today. Now enjoy the message. I suppose beyond uh, starts to rattle us a little bit. We can actually be tossed about. Another, uh, another author, Paul, would say it like this, that To to know your doctrine so that you are not tossed about uh, by every wind of doctrine. In other words, know what the scripture says so that when somebody is speaking 90% truth but 10% false, that 10% false can still be very dangerous. And that's why scripture is very clear that we are to study the word of God, that we are to know the word of God. And we are to embed it into our heart and into our mind, so that when things come up, we can detect it quickly with our eye, with our spiritual eye. Uh, there, there is times and there are places where we are to read about, talk about, and teach about the peripheral things, connection and relationship, and and current events and. The in times there there is times and there is places and there is there is places where it is adequate to teach about the tactics of the enemy. Scripture tells us not to be naive about the tactics of the enemy that means we have to understand his tactics and we have to be able to label his tactics and we have to be able to uh, Be aware of them and address them and call them out. So to do that, there is a certain knowledge and a certain teaching that we have to partake in. And there's times and there's seasons for that. But I am under the school of thought that all of those things, although proper and right in their place, they are the peripheral thing that we are to be teaching on. But somewhere in the American church, we have made it the source that we are teaching on. And therefore, when there's a pandemic, people start shaking. Or when the finances start dipping and flowing, people start shaking. And when banks start closing down, the church starts getting rattled. Or when the government oversteps its boundaries, the church starts getting rattled. Why? Because we have taken those things that were meant to be peripheral to just undergird and and stabilize us and we have made them the stability thing to draw people in and we have quit talking about Jesus. And Jesus is to be the anchor of our soul. We are to anchor ourselves in the revelation of who he is and then when we are anchored, then when other things need addressed, you address them through the lens of who you know Jesus to be. But when you take Jesus out of the equation and you start preaching only about the devices of the enemy and you, you start preaching only about healthy relationships and you start preaching only about how to have good finance, then it doesn't matter how good the teaching is. When the winds and the waves of culture start smashing against your life, we will falter because those things will not uphold us. The only thing that will uphold us is the Spirit of God that lives in us. And I am under the uh, belief that we are to so teach and preach about Jesus and the doctrine of who He is, that as we behold Him, as we see who He is, and just the revelation and the knowledge of who He is in our life, that all these other things, as they begin to play out, and as they begin to come and ebb and flow and, and we come in contact with them, we start recognize them. It's just like this. A person who is a jeweler, a gemologist, a person who studies gems and precious stones, they do not study false stones and fake stones and counterfeit stones. They so study the real ones That when the fake ones come across their counter, they don't even have to get their little magnifying glass. They can tell by the cut. They can tell by the color. They can tell how it's being holstered in it. They have so studied the authentic that their eye is trained to see the authentic that the peripheral thing or the counterfeit thing cannot uh, be divisive to them, cannot be deceptive to them. And that's what we're doing in this series. We are so looking at Jesus and who he is and the power of his name and the authority of his resurrection and who we are in Christ that all these other things are good to study. But you start looking at who he is and the power of who he is and you just kind of take your eyes off for a moment. You don't need to study about spirits. Because the spirit that's in you will recognize that's not the spirit. Y'all are quiet in here today. You can start looking at Jesus so much and searching for Jesus in the Scripture that when you begin to look at people, all you see is Jesus' mercy in them. And then your attitude comes down because now it's not a meek and no more. Now because I've been staring at Jesus, His mercy and His goodness is flowing in my life. And where I would have been a little bit sass-mouthed to Him... (laughs) Now Jesus, because I'm looking at Jesus and Jesus begins to alter my speech and Jesus begins to alter my attitude and Jesus begins to alter my thoughts. And now, and now my opinions, how I had it laid out, now my opinions have come subjected under his opinion and his authority. And now I start acting different and I start portraying different. And now I'm doing what the scripture says, I'm becoming holy just as he is holy. And so that's what we are studying here today. And the key theme throughout the entire book of Hebrews is that this, and I really hit this thought last week, is that Jesus is better than anything that came before. Quit trying to go back to the Old Testament. And when I say quit going back to the Old Testament, I'm not talking about reading the Old Testament. I'm not trying to, I'm I'm not talking about applying the Old Testament to our lives and our spirit. I'm talking about the ritual things, the, the literal things. Scripture is very clear that we don't have to do those things anymore because there is a better covenant. Everybody say better covenant. And that covenant is Jesus Christ. Why do you want to go back to something that was inferior and when we have the better right in front of us, run to Jesus. Jesus is the better way. In fact, he's not only the better way, he is the only way. He is the only way. So the author, we don't know who this author is, but the author of Hebrews, as he was writing, he was trying to bring about a few principles that he reiterated over and over and just kind of disguised them in a little bit different scripture, a little bit different uh, orientation. But he begins to reveal that following Jesus is better than following anything that this world has to offer. And he puts Jesus in this light of he is better and he's always going to be better and quit, quit succumbing to the temptations of the enemy and the evil and the darkness that tastes good for a moment when Jesus is the one that is better than what is tasting good for the moment is, is, is what you're being offered uh, through the culture and through the world does it taste good to your flesh absolutely if it didn't taste good to your flesh and if it wasn't appeasing to your flesh it would not be temptation I am not tempted by broccoli it does not taste good to me I am not tempted by onions unless they're in salsa. That's the only way I like onions is in salsa. I'm not tempted by it. Why? Because there's nothing about it that tastes good to me. I'm not tempted by pop. You could have a hundred different soda pops up here, and I would be like, I'm not tempted by it. Why? Because it doesn't taste good to me. There's nothing in me that desires that. But you put a bowl of ice cream (laughs) anywhere in my nostril senses and I have to start praying in tongues, I have to rebuke the devil, I have to turn away and look, why? Because there's something in me that even though I'm trying to be more health conscious, I still, y'all better grab a hold of this, that I still desire it and there are going to be some things in your natural being because we are human that you're always going to be drawn to something because it does taste good to your flesh. But I'm just here to tell you that Jesus is even better than that. That's what the whole temptation of Christ was all about was that Jesus allowed himself, In human flesh form to be tempted by the very one that he created. Imagine that. That he lowered himself to the place that the being that he created. And fell out of rebellion. Now gets to tempt our Lord and Savior in the flesh. And he allowed himself to be in that position. So that he would know what you feel like so that he would know what tempts you so that he would know what it takes. And when he's sitting at the right hand, interceding and saying, oh, Father, just pour out your grace on him because I've been there, I know what flesh is like. Oh, Father, I know what it feels like to be bodied up in this flesh and the flesh is wanting this and it's wanting that. Oh, Father, pour out your grace and he is ever interceding for you and I, why? Because he allowed himself to become lower than even the angels that he created, to be tempted. But the good news is, is he did not fail to the temptation. He overcame the temptation so that you and I might follow in his path. And so there is, and there is reward in following his path. And so the book of Hebrews is all about. Jesus being better and being more. In Hebrews 10.23, it says this that says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He here is Jesus. He here is the Trinity Godhead. He is faithful to his promises. Jesus is more than you think he is. The whole chapter of chapter 1, the author talks about uh, the revelation of who Jesus is in his incarnate self, in his preexistent flesh form. That's what the whole first chapter of Hebrews is about. And revelation, it's given us a revelation of who he is. And revelation is about unveiling something that was previously concealed. And so the author of Hebrews is trying to give us a peek into who Jesus is because we can't see him with our natural eyes. We can only see him with the spirit eyes. And when you look at him with natural eyes, you won't see uh, the magnitude and and just the greatness of who he is. That's why when natural people looked at his natural being, they couldn't comprehend who he was. Because all they could see was that he came from Mary and that he came from Joseph and that he came from Nazareth. And who is this? Surely he can't be the Son of God because he doesn't have certain status. And he, because they could only comprehend with their natural mind and their natural eye, and the natural mind cannot see how good he is. Only the spirit can see how good he is. And we have to cultivate our spirit. Another author tells us that we are to hunger and thirst for his righteousness. And it's only when we hunger for his righteousness that we are filled. We cannot fill up on his righteousness and his holiness when we are filling up on everything else. And so sometimes conviction is about you emptying out all that trash. I'm going to say that again. Sometimes as believers, the, the Lord will allow conviction to lay on us. The purpose of the conviction It's so that we empty out of ourselves all that we filled up on so that we can know him better. It's not, conviction is never for punishment's sake. Conviction is a telltale sign that God is going to do anything in his power and everything in his power to try to reach your heart. That's exactly what conviction is. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. So the author of Hebrews is trying to bring a revelation of who Jesus is. And in the first chapter, it's all about his eternal being before he became flesh. Chapter 2 is all about where we're going to study today. So, so last week, we really uh, dove into the deity of Christ. This week, we're going to dive into the humanity of Christ. But even in his humanity, he was so complex, we can't fully even understand it. So it's still going to be deep. So y'all put your seatbelts on. Put your listening ears on. Take some notes. Because I'm telling you, what we are going to study in the book of Hebrews is going to be the very thing that in the coming months and coming years, you're going to need if you're not going to be shaken. And the scripture says, let everything that can be shaken be shaken. How do you get out of that category of being shakable? You anchor yourself in the revelation of who Jesus Christ is. And then the soul of who you are, the spirit of who you are, you might feel the effects of the culture. You might feel the effects of financial strain. You might feel the effects of physical limitations. You might feel the effects of relational strains. You're going to probably feel the effects of that, but it will not shake you out of his hand. Because another scripture says, you have been rooted and grounded you know what being rooted and grounded in the word means? It means I am not reliant upon rain coming down. I am so rooted that I draw it from up beneath. So that even when there's a spiritual drought, I'm still flourishing. Because I'm not, I'm not actively seeking the physical rain coming down. Because I have so rooted myself in the word of God that I'm going in deep and I'm bringing up wells of living water. And my fear is in 2023 that the church has succumbed to the surface of the rain of the Spirit coming down because we haven't taught who Jesus is, that you can draw it so deep within your soul. It doesn't matter what spiritual drought is happening. Another scripture in the scripture of Psalms, it says, Even in your elderly age, you can bear fruit in all seasons. How do you do that? Your roots go down deep. Therefore, it doesn't matter to me when it rained. Y'all, I'm so far off of these scriptures. Elijah could care less that he went through three and a half years of drought because he had a river brook that he was sitting beside On a daily basis. Everybody else was reading the newspaper. When's it going to rain? What's the seven day forecast? Oh God. If they served other gods. They got rituals going out. They're throwing out corn. They're throwing out wheat. They're burning incense. They're sacrificing goats. They're sprinkling blood all over. They're doing rituals day in and day out. Why? To try to get the quote unquote ungod gods of the earth to bring rain. And Elijah's back over here sitting by a brook, dipping his little cup in the thing, got his little pinky out like Kermit the Frog. Oh, there's a drought? I mean, he knew intellectually there was a drought because he's the one that prophesied the drought. But he wasn't bothered by the drought because he had a personal brook. And what the book of Hebrews is going to do for your life and for my life and for our collective lives together is it's going to create a personal brook that no matter what we face, even spiritual drought won't affect. Oh, just to get us to the place where spiritual drought won't affect us. And we're still bearing fruit. Why? Because our roots are going down deep. And so the author of Hebrews is doing Everything in his power to bring revelation about who Jesus is. And revelation and illumination are completely different. They're both important, but they are different. Revelation is the revelatory uh, principles of the word. It's the revelation of the word. Illumination is your understanding of the word. And a lot of times people will talk out of their illumination, but they don't have the revelation of what they're talking about. (laughs) Y'all are just staring at me like, what's she just saying? <laughs> Revelation is something that's here, but you can't see it because you can't see it with the natural thinking mind. That's why you can read a scripture a thousand times. And then on the thousand and five fifth time, you can be like, how did that get in there? Who wrote this in my Bible? Why? Because the other times... It was just your carnality reading it. Nothing wrong with that. Sometimes we have to just do due diligence and just discipline ourselves to read Scripture. And it's not going to be fiery every time. And it's not going to be this, this awesome experience every time. It's just going to be this mundane reading of the word. But it's those everyday mundane reading of the words that at one time, all of a sudden, boom, you, you have this power that you have this breakthrough in your soul and then your eyes are enlightened. Your your spirit then starts to see revelatory things. And now you're not just talking from intellect illumination. Now you're starting to talk from revelation. And so illumination is your understanding of it. And one of the ways we have to be careful in our culture of not to drift And not to be tossed around is that when there's proper revelation, but there's bad illumination. In other words, you can read the revelation of the Scripture, but because your understanding of the Scripture is off, you begin to talk ab- out of your illumination. Even though the revelation is right, the way you're talking about it is wrong. That's how bad doctrine gets sowed into the church. That's how denominations veer away from the truth because they, they have the revelation of the Word, but they're trying to bring their own illumination to it. I read to you part of what that crazy woman so-called Christian said she had this revelation of what the Lord's prayer was supposed to be like. How do I call her crazy? And no, because her illumination of the revelation of how we are to pray that Jesus set forth started off like this. Oh, cosmic birther. Now I'm done. You just disqualified everything that I was even interested in listen to you. Because even though there is revelation about the Lord's prayer, your illumination just tainted everything. And she goes on, and I didn't even repeat all of it because it'd pray, conjure up some kind of demon. And so one of the ways we have to be careful is not just knowing the revelation, but allowing our minds to be renewed by the revelation So that the illumination, it comes out. Because when we begin to explain through a bad illumination, we can create devastation for our life. And it all started with good revelation. But because the illumination got off, then the explanation came out. And the next thing you know, there's devastation. And the revelation of the word is like, I'm still over here. I'm still the plumb line. We have Christians over here, we have believers over here, and we have denominations over here that are trying to convince us that things that absolutely are thou shalt not sin the Bible, they're trying to say, well, you know, it just got translated wrong. It got translated from the Hebrew to the Greek to the Latin to the Aramaic to the Spanish to the German. They don't even know what they're talking about because that's not how the Bible was translated. They think, they think God played this ginormous game of telephone with human languages and that in this human telephone that some of the words and phrases got changed. That's not, y'all, that's dumb. That's just dumb. The revelation of the word says what it means, it means what it says, and our illumination has to match up to what he's trying to reveal to us. And so the last half of chapter 1 talks about Jesus is incomparable to anything and everything. So look what it says. Let me let me say this. Let me I was going to go right to the new stuff but let me say this. <clears throat> it tells us in the last half of this chapter of chapter 1 that he is incomparable to anything and then Hebrews you don't, you don't have to turn there, but in Hebrews 1 verse 9 actually quotes Psalms 45. So the author of Hebrews knows his Torah and, and the prophets and the scriptures so well that he is bringing Old Testament scripture into the New Testament and revealing how they apply to Jesus Christ. And he does that throughout the entirety of the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is one of the largest books that has quoted other verses of the Bible. The book of Hebrews has more scripture in other books. And so... And it's talking about being a companion or a partner with Christ or in Christ or of Christ. What does that being a partner of Christ mean? Believers have the opportunity to be Christ's companions or Christ's partners who will rule with him as part of his inner circle. So those who accept him as their sin bearer, they by accepting him as sin bearer you gain entrance by grace and faith into the kingdom of god but it's your participation as christ's partner or christ's companion that determines your level of the inheritance of the kingdom so in other words it's your faith in who jesus is by Faith in grace that gets you in the door because Jesus is the door. And so your works don't get you in. It's your faith in who Jesus that gets you in the door of the kingdom. However, that's where that part of salvation stops. And the next part of salvation is called sanctification. And that sanctification is a longer process. The first part is called justification. That's instantaneous. You, ex- you know who Jesus is. You accept his work on the cross. Boom, he becomes the door. You are in the kingdom of God through repentance, by faith, and by grace in Jesus Christ. That's good news, y'all. But that's not where it stops, but that's where we Americans stop. But there's another step called sanctification. And that sanctification is a much longer process. And that, my friend, is where through participation in who he is and your obedience to the words that he has spoken guarantees or dictates your level of authority and even your level of reward in the kingdom. So there are some things... That may not keep you out of heaven, but the goal is not just to get to heaven. The goal is to be partners with Christ so that when the new heaven and the new earth descends down and this old earth is passed away, we have levels of authority in Christ ruling and reigning. And I told you last week, there are going to be people in families that they will both go to heaven or they will all go to heaven. But they will not all be on the same level of authority. They will not all be on same level inheritance. You will have wives and husbands that are born again believers that work in the ministry. But one or the other will do just enough to be justified. While the other one will be pressing on and being marked by his holiness, being marked by his goodness, becoming an intercessor, doing everything that they can. And they both will go to heaven, praise the Lord. But there will come a time when Jesus, our Lord and Savior, will exalt the one into a level of authority based on obedience and participation. That should entice us. To be like, God, I just don't want to live on the peripheral. I don't just want to be a Christian that barely makes it in. And meanwhile, I squander my life. By squandering it, I mean I just do selfish things. I just do fleshly things. And I never submit my opinion and my authority to the authority of Christ. Are you all still with me? In other words, you are an heir by grace. But your obedience and your participation with Christ determines your benefits. <laughs> your obedience determines your benefits. There is rewards in the kingdom of heaven. Some of those re- rewards we're going to throw at his feet. Some of that will be inheritance. To rule and reign with him. And I know that there is a teaching. And I know that people, uh, because they misread kingdom authority, they try to decree that everyone is equal in the kingdom of God. But that is simply a humanistic reasoning of fairness. Because we live in America, we want everything to be fair. But in the kingdom, it's not based like that. There is equality in the open door to the kingdom. Whosoever will. There is equality in opening up to justification, to being saved, to being born again. All are called. But there's a little tag on the end of that scripture that says, but few are chosen. What does that mean? It doesn't mean God only chooses or predestines some to go to heaven or not. That is based on my free will. If my acceptance of Jesus is that. But it's when I do that and then coming into the kingdom by faith through grace. Now it's my participation. And some of y'all ain't participating enough. (laughs) Is this too much for y'all? That's what it says. And all will know your works and your deeds when you stand before the Father. When we stand before the Father, the Father is not going to look at us with eyes of judgment and say, you said this, you did this, you sinned here. All of that is under the blood. You don't have to be afraid of that as long as you are a born-again believer. Everybody, somebody say hallelujah for that. Thank you, Jesus, for that. The work of the cross, as long as you are a believer and have repented of your sin, that's not what God's showing everybody. God's showing everybody your level of participation, your level of obedience. And that's why when we see people at the back of the crowd, Jesus, I don't know how he's going to do it, but Jesus somehow in his authority and his might, He's going to go get these people that are unknown at the very back of heaven if there is such a thing. Somehow by his angel's authority or the spirit or somehow going to grab that soul by the hand and say, you don't belong back here. I know nobody knew your name and I know nobody understood how often you prayed and I know nobody knew how much you dug into the word and I know you went to hell and back while you were on earth but I'm here now to give you part of your inheritance and part of your inheritance is to be in the inner circle reign and rule with Jesus. That's all part of obedience and participation. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be in the back. I don't want people to know my name. I don't have this desire to be famous here on earth. I want to be famous in heaven when Jesus says, no, those that are in the back. And then those that think that they're good. Those that think that they've slaved and those that are always whatever. I don't even want to get into all that. They're right there in the front row. You know, Jesus is going to be like, excuse me, can you get up? Excuse me. You're in heaven, and you got saved, but you lived your life in such a way that everything was acceptable to you. Y'all are quiet in this building today. Have we become a church in 2023 that everything is acceptable to us, that everything is holy now? we will be rewarded based on our participation of obedience last week i shared this story we'll get to chapter 2 don't worry if if we don't get there we got next week last week i shared the story i'm not going to share it again but i just want to remind you i shared the story talking about not everybody has the same authority so that is humanistic thinking when you hear people say That everybody has, that all are equal in the kingdom of God. It's only a partial truth in the fact of the entrance to the kingdom of God. Once you enter the kingdom of God, that principle is gone. And then there's a new principle, participation of obedience into who Christ is and his reigning and his ruling. That's why the scripture says, in him I live and move and have my being. And so now we are in the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, there is different levels of authority. And if you remember, I told you the story about my, about my father, how there was some kind of prayer group going on. And there was that. Remember I told you about the teenage boy. He was about 14, 15, something like that. And he was on his four knees, and he had just been letting F-bombs everywhere, and he was trashing his mom, and he was, like, threatening her, and she was kind of in a walker, and he was just being crazy abusive to her. And it was just like, I was young, but I can remember this very distinctively. And people were trying to pray and my dad was just like, give me the boy. He had a level of authority. The boy was cast out. Let me tell you a different story of an amazing, holy woman that I, I've always known of her, but in the last like two years of her life, I really got to spend some time with her and I will be forever grateful. She was a mighty woman of God. Yvette will know who I'm talking about. Her name was Pastor June Dow. She was incredible. She was one of the first women evangelists that I had ever come in contact with and and knew of. And so even in the last few years of her life, I would go over to her little bitty apartment above the church that she stayed in. And I would tell her some of my dreams and she would be like, well, Amika, this is so simple. (laughs) I'd be like, well, apparently I don't get it so you need to teach me. She was an amazing woman. She, her, her daughter is one of my dear friends, but she has since went on to be with the Lord. But when she was still alive, we was all part of a youth camp experience that was going on. In this youth camp, God was doing some amazing things, and I don't remember exactly what night it was, but it was one of the nights, and man, teenagers were being filled with the Holy Ghost, with the evidence of speaking in tongues. People were young, young boys, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, was being called into the ministry. Like like they, they was having oil literally poured on them and they was being anointed and set apart unto God. God was doing incredible things in these services. And they were very long in nature. And so this one specific service, just my physical body was tired. And so I went back in the, into the audience because I had been helping pray and different things. So I went back into the audience and I sat down by my friend who was also sitting by her mom. And there was a young lady that was in there who was devil-possessed, not oppressed, She literally was possessed by the devil. And she had been coming, I think, one other night before that. But she came back, and you could tell it. Every time you you got around her, you're like, oh, there's some darkness on her. And I didn't even fully know that she was possessed. I could just tell that there was some darkness on her. And you could just tell her eyes were very dim, very dark. There wasn't a lot of light in her face. And there were some people there. They were born-again believers. They loved God with all their heart but they did not carry authority. One of them happens to be an ordained minister. Y'all. One of them, an ordained minister to this day. And once the authority... And they were taken... Tim, you're going to be the devil-possessed girl, okay? (laughs) Okay. Deontay's like, yes, she didn't choose me. (laughs) And they were sweating and they were laboring. And I had already took my seat back here because I was tired. I was worn out, y'all. I was sitting there and I was just talking with my friend, not talking disrespectfully. We was talking about what was happening. And I was like, man, I just, you know, I was pushing it off on somebody else because I was a much younger pastor then. I probably wasn't walking in the authority So I knew my place. (laughs) So I was like, I'm just going to sit this one out. You ain't jumping out of her and jumping on me, stripping me butt naked like you did the dude in the. (laughs) You ain't making a mockery out of me. I'm going to take my place right here. I don't walk in that kind of authority yet. (laughs) So they were striving. They were when I say yelling. I'm not. That's not being facetious. They were yelling. They lost their voice. They was yelling so much. This one person who is a who is an ordained minister thought that there was something. Now hear my totality of my statement. Thought there was something special about the actual pages of the Bible. The Bible is valuable. But this, this is just leather. This is, now, God will often protect this in times of chaos and crisis. We see that. But this right here can't do nothing for you. You understand? It's not magical. And So I don't know who taught them this, but they had a trash can there just in case the devil needed to throw up. And they were taking the Bible, and they were literally wrapping it because it was a much bigger Bible. Because, you know, they were holy. And they were wrapping it around this girl's head, shaking this girl's head. Come out, devil. Come out, devil. And this girl's body was just getting so weary because it started. She was standing up. She kind of fell on the altar right there, and she was just weak. So meanwhile, I'm sitting over here. My friend is sitting here, and her mom, the one who walks in authority, was sitting right over there. My friend and I were just talking. We're like, man, I wish somebody would take control of this service. I wish, what is happening? What are these people doing? Why well, was rapping. I'm like, we're seriously concerned. We're not being disrespectful at all. We were concerned for the soul of the girl. Miss June Dow. I kid you not. I can see it in my mind clear as day right now. Older. She was probably in her 80s at this time. She said, because this is her daughter, she said, excuse me, baby, I need you to move your legs. She gets up. She said, I'm done with this mess. (laughs) Word for word, she said, I'm done with this mess. She said, excuse me, pardon me, I need to get through. And she just made her way. And she just grabbed this girl's face, made her look at her eye, and she said, devil, I see you. And you come out in the name of Jesus Christ. That girl went, (sighs) she stiffened up no more shaking, no more silly religious antics. She's like, no, you ain't faking me out. You haven't come out. You come out in the name of Jesus. And boom, instantly. That girl's body just fell back down. Miss June Dow said, ma'am, or she didn't call her ma'am. She said, I think she said, sweetheart or something like that, some kind of endearing. She said, sweetheart, you're free. You're free. And she went walking back to her seat and she sat her 80-year-old body down and she said, now, what were y'all talking about? Don't tell me everybody has the same authority in the kingdom of God because that is false. And you gain authority, listen, you gain authority through participation of obedience. Walking in obedience, you gain authority. Now, every believer has a, what? What I'll, for us to differentiate what I'm talking about, every believer has an entry level of authority. Because it, it just, that's part of the gift of salvation. But to grow your authority, it does take participation on your part. That's why some people can get up and sing, and it's a good song. And we worship, and we're just like, whoo, that was a great song. And somebody else can get up and sing the same exact song, and people are like, ha, ha. What is it? It's the anointing and the authority. It's that I've been by the river, and I've been drinking from the brook, even though there's been a spiritual drought going on. I've been participating with the partnership of Jesus Christ. And part of that reward is, yes, there is an inheritance to come. But part of the reward is being able to walk in a level of his authority and the revelation of the power of his might right here on this earth. That's why Peter could say, such as I have, I give unto you, rise up and walk. He'd had no authority to heal, but what was in him was walking at a level of authority what he's seen his Savior Messiah do. So look what it says here. I'm going to read through this. Put up chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. We'll just go a little bit longer. We'll just go a little bit longer. What time did you turn it over to me? Do you remember? Like 10 minutes ago? (laughs) I'm just kidding. We're going to start with verse 5. I'm reading, normally I read out of the New King James because I feel like that, that is I, I, it's just my preference. But this morning I'm reading out of the NLT because I feel like it, it makes it a little bit more palatable. Okay, so let me just read this to you. And furthermore, it is not angels who will control the future world we are talking about. So everything that Paul has, I mean, everything that the author of Hebrews has been talking about for the first uh, five verses is talking about the world. And then he comes back and he's saying, and furthermore, the angels are not going to be the one who control the future of the world we're talking about. Verse six, for in one place the scripture says so he's getting ready to quote the scripture here he says what are mere mortals that you should think about man or the son of man that you should take care of him most of you will know this scripture when it says like this what are what are we that you should be mindful of man that that's the new king james trans version of that that you should think of him or that the son of man that you should care for him for yet a little while you made them Come on, keep going. Pay attention back there, guys. Verse 7. Yet for a little while you made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. And you gave them authority over all things. Now when it says all things, it means nothing is left out. This is talking about Jesus and he's using Old Testament scripture. He is quoting Old Old Testament scripture and he's telling you this overall picture of the purpose of why Jesus came to earth. Now, when it says all things, it means nothing is left out. In other words, there's nothing out of his authority, but we have not yet seen all things put under his authority. In other words, there is nothing out of his authority, but with our physical eyes, we have not seen everything that he has authority. Over verse 9, what we do see is Jesus for who a little while now. What he's starting to do is he, for those first couple of verses, he gives you an overarching quoting of Old Testament scripture of Isaiah and Psalms. And now, what he's going to do is he's going to reiterate those quotations of what he just said, but he's going to fine tune it and he's going to make it in precision form. And he says, So, what we do see is Jesus. For who a little while was given a position, a little lower than the angels. And because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. That terminology tasted death right there is kind of a euphemism and and it means experience. In other words, Jesus, by God's grace, Jesus experienced death for everyone everyone he experienced death so that you and I would not have to experience all death we might have to experience one death but we will never experience the second death some of us God willing won't even experience one death I just lost all of you right there except for maybe two people that are over the age of 50 that know what I'm talking about. Because there's going to come a time when Jesus is going to return. And the generation that is on the earth when Jesus returns will never even taste the first death. Some of us, though, if that time lingers and gets further and further away from us, we may taste the first death but because of God's grace and the glory and the honor upon Jesus Jesus tasted death or he experienced death the psalmist said this oh taste and see that the Lord is good what is he saying oh experience the Lord and you'll understand his goodness people who say the Lord is not good and the Lord is not faithful has never experienced him That's what he's talking about. Taste that Jesus tasted of the death for everyone. Verse 10. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory. And it was only right that he should make Jesus through suffering. Look at this. I pray this all the time. A perfect leader. I often pray, Jesus you are a perfect leader. Help me to be a perfect follower. Jesus, you are a perfect shepherd. Help me to be a sheep that follows after your perfectedness. This I love this, that He is a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. So now Jesus and the ones He makes holy have the same Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and his sisters. In other words, when we stand before God and even before then, Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother and sister. At some point, we're going to get into something amazing about that. For he said to God, Jesus is now saying to God, I will put my trust in him. Verse 13. I will put my trust in him. That is, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die. And only by dying could he... Oh, I love this. Only by dying could he break the power of... Of the devil who had the power of death. So by his death he broke the power of death. Now the devil does not own death. He just uses death. And he uses the the fake fear of death. Whether that be a physical death. Whether that be a spiritual death. Whether that be a, a relational death. It doesn't matter. Satan will always use the fear of some kind of death. But Jesus says, I've already died so that you don't have to even fear death because the devil has had his power broken. Only in this way, verse 15, only in this way could he set free all those who have lived their lives as slaves, To the fear of dying. We also know that the son did not come to help angels. He's reiterating this part about angels. But he came to help the descendants of Abraham. We're almost done. We're getting our Bible reading in for the day. (laughs) Therefore, verse 17. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made even in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that we could, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest that merciful, faithful high priest before God, then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. Because of what Christ went through, he is able to help us when we are being tested tested for the sake of time let me just try to give you some of this in the natural I'm going I'm to give you a natural thing that, a natural occurrence that happens in order for your mind to wrap around what Jesus did there is a natural thing that happens with bees that as they are buzzing around, as, as they are trying to find somebody to uh, sting, they, they, they sting a person. That person is affected by it. And when, when either they're smacked or brushed away or, or they're done, and they, they leave, they actually, what causes the irritation is they leave the stinger in the person they bite. And oftentimes that person is affected by that. What Jesus is saying, he's calling himself and God is calling him. And the author of Hebrews is calling him the older brother, the firstborn among among many brothers and sisters. And so to put this in an analogy so that you and I can wrap our minds around what Jesus did. Picture an older brother and a younger brother playing in the backyard And all of a sudden, there's a bee swarming around. And the little brother is just going nuts, working himself into a frenzy because he's fearful that the bee is going to sting him. And the older brother just calmly puts his hand on his shoulder and says, little bro, you don't have to be fearful. He's not going to sting you. How do you know that? How do you know that? He's right there. He's got a stinger. I've heard about what bees can do. I heard how they can hurt. I heard. And he starts just regurgitating all the things that he has heard about the bee and the sting of the bee. And the older brother says this. You don't have to worry about that bee because he's already stung me. And his stinger is still in me. So he cannot sting you. He can only make a lot of noise. That's what Jesus did for us, my friend as our older brother he said i've already taken the sting of death i've already taken what every every rock every temptation every testing that the devil had to offer my body was put to the test and i did not fail because of the mercies and grace of god and so i'm letting you know that i've already taken everything that the enemy has to offer and he cannot hurt you all he can do is make a lot of noise And all he can do is fill your mind with a lot of fear. But I've already got his stinger. That's what Jesus is portraying in Hebrews chapter 2 he's trying to say new life the enemy can make a lot of noise and if you're not careful you will succumb to the noise and you will succumb to the voices and you will succumb to the chaos and you will succumb to the rioting and the chaotic things that are happening in your mind and in your spirit and in your soul but I've come to tell you I've already taken the stinger on your behalf and I know what it feels like to be tested and I'm already sitting at the right hand of the father and I'm already telling the father I know exactly what they're going through because I had a physical body and I went through that same thing my mind was tempted like them my emotions was tempted like them my physical body was tempted like them I had people talking the way they talk about you I had people stabbing me in the back I had people betraying me he can say everything I've had people abusive to me he can say every scenario that you and I have gone through or will ever gone through Jesus said I've already taken it All you have to do, and all I have to do, is come up under the power of his resurrection. What he did on the cross was incredible. In fact, another author says every time you come together and you participate in the suffering in Christ and you remember back, every time you do this in remembrance of me and you partake of the communion and the, and the wine, just remember what I did. So there is a time and a place to remember the amazing things because we would not even be in his presence without the cross and the blood of Jesus. However, my friend, let's not live our life always and only thinking of the cross because there is this whole realm of victorious living that we can walk in and walk in the power and the authority of his resurrection there is time for remembrance to the cross and we should always go back to the cross for thanksgiving and gratefulness and plead the blood of Jesus but there is also a level that we can walk in Christ and we can say death has no power over me the enemy has no control over me Jesus already took the stinger away That means you, my friend, can walk in deliverance. You can walk in freedom. See, we think we have to always walk with this carnality attached to us or these things attached to us, and there might be a season where that is true. But I'm telling you, through the power of his resurrection, you can walk in 100% freedom. 100% freedom. That's the power of his resurrection. That's part of his reward for for laying his life down as the sacrifice. I have so many notes that I'm not even going to look at them no more. When I was in Israel, let me give you this. When I was in Israel, many things put an imprint on my heart and life but I probably have a top five. And this was one of the top five. That we was, we took a tour bus over into Bethlehem. And we was seeing all the different sites there and doing all the different things. And one of the amazing, we was seeing where maybe not the necessarily house or anything, but where some of the ruins are, where at least some of the villages would have been. And so the tour guide is amazing. He was incredible. And he took us in to this cave in Bethlehem. So as we walked in this cave, they had different things set up, just you know, because it's it, it is a tourist attraction. <clears throat> and so they have put things in there that weren't there, obviously, in that day. But they're telling and reciting the the Israeli Culture, the Jewish culture, of what it would have been like back when Jesus was born. And they're talking about how, in this cave, this would have been the cave where the shepherds would have came to bring all the sheep into at nighttime, or when there was times of danger. And then they had this one little section that it was more toward the front of the entrance of the cave and you had to kind of dip down in like this. And then there was this little part and then the cave kind of opened up and that's where they would herd all the sheep back in this open area. But in this smaller area, it, it would have been where they kept the lambs. The newborn lambs that were just being born, they would have kept them. That's where the manger is and it's a hewed out, hewn out stone and so it's this stone manger-looking thing, and there's still, there were several there because multiple sheeps would be having lambs. So they were telling about how if you would stand right out here, this is the direction that the shepherds would have seen the stars or seen the, seen the star of Bethlehem. And, and when they was out in the field, they would have came to this spot. They would have known this spot because these were not just ordinary shepherds just random shepherds because they were in Bethlehem these were temple shepherds and because they were temple shepherds their assignment was to take care of the sheep and and go over the lambs that when the lambs were born they would inspect the lambs and if it appeared as if they were would be Part of, or at least have the opportunity to become the sacrifice because Jerusalem was not far from Bethlehem. They would take those lambs and they would wrap them in these strips of cloth. They would wrap their legs so that the little mites would not bite them because they could not have any blemish and they could not have any sores. And so they would wrap the legs of the lambs with these little strips of cloth to keep them pure for the sacrifice. And they would wrap the body so that the body, the wool of the body would not become stained with any contaminant, because you have to understand if you have a lot of sheep in there, there's a lot of contaminants. And so they would wrap them and swaddle them so that the contaminants would not affect the potential sacrifice, and so that the swaddling would not come apart. They would lay the baby sheep or lamb into the manger to separate them from everything else so that when the temple shepherds following the star, after they heard the singing, they would have come in to just this first mouthpiece of this cave. They would have looked over there and there would have been Mary and there would have been this baby. That is wrapped in swaddling clothes, laying in a manger, being swaddled from all the irritants and contamination. You know you are a good shepherd when you can swaddle yourself away from the contaminants of the world. And even though he was in the cave, he was not of the cave. And he was laying there waiting to become the perfect sacrifice for the propitiation of sin. And that's why these temple shepherds rejoiced. Not because they just merely seen a baby and not because they had this amazing encounter from angels. I'm sure that was great, but that wasn't the sole reason. The reason was they had the, the wherewithal to understand whatever lies here that swaddled is going to be the sacrifice for sin. And so they look down and they see this perfect baby swaddled, lying in a manger just six miles outside of where the temple would be. And they rejoiced and they said, could this be our Messiah? Could this be the one that we prayed and cried for? Little did they know that he was. And it said they fell on their face and they worshiped him because of everything that he portrayed, even as a baby, even as a 10-minute born baby he was fulfilling the prophecies and the cries of his people. And we just read through the scriptures that said, for a little while, he was placed lower than the angels. What on earth does that mean? That means this, that even though he was with God, and was creator of all things that by him and through him all things were made that were made, scripture says, and he created all these things. He allowed himself to put on flesh and get in the position to subject himself even lower than the angels. Now to fully understand this, you have to understand that there are good and evil spirits that have territorial uh, what's a good word, leverage or, or domain or uh, jurisdiction. It would be a good word. There are both good and evil spirits that they are allowed to have domain and jurisdiction over certain countries, cities, areas, communities, and it's still that way today. Jesus puts on flesh... And Scripture says he becomes a little lower than the angels. And he submitted himself that when he was born in Bethlehem, which was of the Israeli nation, which was Jewish, that means he himself became Jewish. He actually positioned himself to be under the jurisdiction of Michael, the archangel, because you can read in the Old Testament, I believe it's the book of Daniel, where it says Michael is the archangel over Israel. But he said, I created you, but there's somebody beyond you that I got to get to. And so I'm willing to put on human flesh and put myself lower than you and subject myself to your authority, and I'm going to come up under you, Michael, and you're going to be the prevailing force over Jerusalem and over Israel. Now, the good thing is, is Michael already understood his place and he said I know who Jesus is I ain't dumb that other one he was dumb (laughs) I ain't stepping out of my authority because I know who this is to y'all he looks like a baby to me he's still king of kings and lord of lords He just looks like a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and you don't know who he is. And he looks disguised and you can't see the revelation of who he is. And he might have submitted to my authority right now because I, I am in the jurisdiction of this. But I ain't dumb. That's still Jesus. That's still the word. Why is this important to us? And why does the author of Hebrews think that we need to know this in our knowledge to understand who God is? Because I'm telling you, friends, there are still good and evil spirits that have jurisdiction over countries, over authorities, over cities. But what happens when that one person comes and kneels their knee down to the altar of Jesus and says, Jesus, I accept you as Lord and Savior. Even if that person is in the middle of Africa, we're All kinds of crazy nonsense is happening cultish and spirit-wise. That one uh, young African man bends his knee and says, Jesus, you are Lord and I want you to be my Savior. It doesn't even matter the jurisdiction of the evil that he has over it. All of a sudden, now because he is in Christ, he is taken from that realm and placed over and seated with Christ in heavenly places. So if that can happen in Africa, what can that happen in Kansas City? Don't tell me that Kansas City is too dark and evil, although it is naturally. But we are not a part of that evil because of what Christ submitted himself to. We now have authority as long as we are in participation of obedience to him. But listen, don't mess with stuff. (laughs) Don't mess with stuff that you don't have authority to mess with. Some 82-year-old woman will come put you in your place. She'll be like, I'm sick of this. Get out of here. Come out in the name of Jesus. Oh, if our church, let's just talk about us. If we could collectively, as one ecclesia, as one body, just begin To operate in the revelation of who Jesus is. It doesn't matter who comes through them back doors. It doesn't matter even if they have bad motives. Because now we are operating not just in the blood of the cross. But now we are participating in the resurrection of his power. And we are walking with him. Ryan, come. as you continue reading in hebrews <clears throat> let me just tell you this throughout the book of hebrews there's many things that we find out about jesus we find out that he is our that he is our propitiation which is the act of gaining favor or making things right with somebody mainly god he is our reconciliation he is our redemption But there is one thing, one of my favorite things that the book of Hebrews talks about, and that is expiation. He becomes our expiation. What is that? It means the removal of guilt. I want you to hear me, friend, when I tell you this, because this set my mind free. This set my heart free. This set my spirit free a while ago, a while ago, when I learned this principle right here. Christ became the propitiation for sin, means he took on sin and he redeemed us from sin. And now we have the opportunity through repentance to be saved by his redemption. That is true. But we have a lot of Christians who are walking around still, that although they have repented, they don't understand the second clause to that, that Jesus didn't just die to be the propitiator of sin. He also died to be the expiation. And that means means the removal of guilt. And if you have repented of sin and you have accepted his forgiveness, then the freedom comes in understanding that it didn't just stop there. Because another set of scriptures says he bore our guilt. You know what this means? What is guilt? Guilt and conviction are two different things. Guilt is you bearing the responsibility of what you did and not being able to come out of it. Conviction is God's commitment to let you know that you are wrong in order to draw you to him. Conviction is a good thing. Conviction draws your heart to him. Guilt, however, is not a good thing. Guilt actually pushes you away from God. And so when we understand that Christ forgives us of our sin, but we also don't understand that he redeems us from guilt, there's a lot of Christians walking around still carrying guilt. And Jesus does not want you to carry guilt. He did not die just so that you can be free from sin and be a goody tissue. That's not why he died. He died so that he could redeem you from sin, so that you could have an understanding and revelation that he also took care of your guilt. What is guilt? This is what it is. Feeling guilty about sin that you have been acquitted of by Jesus means you haven't, been, you haven't embraced the heart and the reality of God's mercy on. In other words, you say, Jesus, I repent of my sin and you begin to list those sins and you, you have faith that he has forgiven you of it but when you're still carrying the guilt of it, you don't understand the mercy of God. You don't understand the grace of God and he didn't just bear your sin. Listen, this is what set me free. He also bore how you would feel about your sin and the enemy lies to you and the enemy will lie to me, and the enemy will lie to the church and say, yeah, you can get forgiveness of sin, but you have to carry this all your life. That is a lie. That is a lie. I want you to tell yourself right there where you're at, it's a lie. It is a lie from the pits of hell. It is a It is a misconstruction of the truth. It's a twisting of the truth because Jesus didn't just only die for your sin. He also bore your guilt to the very iniquity of sin. Stand with me all over. What does that mean practically? It means you've been acquitted. When somebody has been acquitted, It means they don't have the full evidence to bring forth for a guilty plea. Jesus said, I already took care of it. And as long as you're coming to me and through me, I've taken care of it. You don't have to carry that guilt. What was what we was doing today when we were singing about the name of Jesus. And the language kept coming up about, what what was the word? It just slipped my mind. Not bondage. Tormenting. Tormenting spirit. The language kept coming up by three different people of tormenting spirit. Why, Why was that coming forth? Because Jesus wants you to understand that he didn't just wash your sin away. He took away your feelings of guilt so you don't have to carry even the feeling of guilt. Let that be freedom to your ears friends and when you're standing before god you are clean before him and his righteousness and when the enemy starts whispering and bringing up things all you have to do is say acquitted i have been acquitted that means you can think i'm doing wrong You can still talk about the wrong I've done, but I've been acquitted. You might still remember, but God does not remember because I have been acquitted. You can still talk about all these things. You can still go blood dipping and bringing all these things up, but I have been acquitted. And so he has redeemed me from sin, but he has also saved me from guilt and bore my guilt all over this building could you just lift your hands and just begin to thank god for the revelation